Welcome, welcome. Um, I hate to cut off these conversations, but I'm going to get you to talk again. So you don't need to sit down if you don't want to, because I want you to do a quick huddle with three or four people. Make sure you don't leave anybody out. I want you to answer these questions. What does truth mean in our culture? And what does it mean to you? What does it mean in your culture? What does truth mean in your culture? And what does it mean to you? So quick three-minute huddle with three or four people. The reason I want you to start thinking is because we're going to do a series on, t on Titus. And look at that beautiful slide that Naomi's made. Oh, my goodness. So artistic. Um, thank you for that. We're going to do this series, and I think one of the big themes has got to do with truth. And I want to sort of cement in your mind a new connection for what you understand truth to be. And this comes up in the very first verse of Titus, that truth leads to godliness. So truth and godliness are things that are inseparable. So believing the gospel, believing the Bible empowers right living and those two things that we, we shouldn't hold them separate okay so when we get to the end of the series and someone says well what was the point of that you can say truth leads to godliness truth leads to godliness if you don't remember anything else that's a very simple takeaway there truth leads to godliness so we're going to look at the book of Titus. So a bit of background to the book of Titus. So Titus is a Greek believer. He's one of Paul's companions and he's a very trusted traveling companion and, and companion with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. Um, and Paul, uh, you know, considers him a son, like a spiritual son. Um, now Paul leaves Titus on the island of Crete to help the church and build up the church there. So the island of Crete is um, off the coast of Greece. It's a very strategic location. It has a number of nice ports, which mean, um, you know, there's a lot of trade and it's kind of a jumping off point for a lot of the Mediterranean world. So you can understand why Paul would have wanted a church there. Very strategic location. The problem was with Crete was the culture. It was a very rough and violent place. So most of the men there would have served as mercenaries, selling their violence to the highest bidder. It was a dangerous place to be. It was full of sexual corruption. Um, and it's hardly surprising because in Crete, the people worshipped the Greek god Zeus. And they were very proud of that. Um, they believed that Zeus's tomb was on the island of Crete and they loved to tell stories and the mythologies about the god Zeus. The problem with Zeus that is that as far as Greek gods go, he wasn't a very nice character. He was actually pretty seedy. Um, one of the stories they told was about how Zeus wanted to seduce a particular woman who wasn't having a bar of it and so he impersonates her husband so that he can have his way with her. So a, a more seedy God you probably couldn't imagine. And so think about that. If, if that's the highest ideal people are holding up in their culture, you can understand what that's going to do to the culture. There's such a brokenness um, in, in, that, in that sort of area. Um, and, you know, this God Zeus was a deceiver. 
And so even, even the fact of lying became accepted in the Cretan culture and even the poets talked about how Cretans are always liars. And Paul quotes that, that, um, that poet in this, in this letter, as you'll see. So it's a very difficult place um, to get a church going really well and you can understand why the church is struggling. But I think it's really encouraging to think that Paul believed that there was enough power in the gospel for even a culture like Crete to be transformed. So, you know, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And I think we can take um, encouragement from that, that our culture is not beyond the hope of the gospel. Um, Paul, Paul saw it was possible in Crete, so it's possible for us too. Um, so it was a challenging place to be and this, this thing of lying was such a big deal that one of the very first things Paul says as he writes this letter is he kind of challenges that aspect of their culture head on. And in that very first opening to the book of Titus, he says, um, he talks about our God who does not lie. And in that little phrase, you can see he's making a challenge to the trust in and the belief in Zeus. And he's saying, here's our God. He's completely different from Zeus. And you need to choose. Are you going to choose Zeus or are you going to choose the God of the Bible? And so as we go through reading the book of Titus together over the next couple of weeks, I want you to think about our culture and what things in our culture are the things that the gospel really challenges. Because there are some times and there are some things in our culture where we've got to choose and we've got to decide whether we're going to take on board our culture or whether we're going to take on board the kingdom of God. So they're the things I want you to be thinking about as, as we go through. So anyway, Paul sends um, Titus, his Greek co-worker, to straighten things out in Crete. And that's how this letter comes to be written. So Paul writes this letter to Titus to give him instructions on what to do. So truth leads to godliness. Believing the gospel results in a transformed community. So let's read through um, this first chapter. It's not very long. Naomi's going to put it up on the screen. Sorry if I have a slightly different translation. It's a bit disorganised. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised at the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent and not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, 
who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the, to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing everything good. And you see that repetition of the theme at the end in verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. That believing and right living are meant to be connected. And, and of course, we're all on a journey. That's not to say that we're instantly perfect um, the moment we believe. But we're on this journey and um, engaging with the truth increasingly is meant to transform our lives. So I want us to ask the question tonight, how do we so deeply engage with the truth that it actually transforms us? What sort of things can we do to help that process of truth coming into our lives and transforming us so that we do become salt? like Ryan talked about, so that we do look different. I want to suggest three starting points. Firstly, be an active part of a community that's being transformed. Be an active part of a community. Number two, be willing to come to God, humbly come to Jesus with our, the way we do life in our culture and, and ask the question, is there anything here that's not lining up with the gospel? And thirdly, look for godly leaders and imitate their life. So firstly, be an active part of a transformed community. So when Paul comes to Crete and he's looking to, you know, he wants to see God restore these people, this brokenness in their culture, it's not meant to be like that. And God wants to see transformation. What does he do? He doesn't pick out individuals and say, well, you individually, you know, you, you get to know God and it'll all be fine. He actually sets up this community of people and he's going to give some instructions on the leaders of this community. So to me, he's, he's making the assumption that the way things get transformed is by working together as part of a community, not as individuals. Um, and I think it's a, a thing you hear relatively often around the place when you're talking to people and they say oh yes I'm a believer oh but I don't go to church I don't I don't I'm not involved with any community I'm just a believer on my own and I don't think that's God's plan that's not how truth transforms us we're transformed when we're part of a community that's seeking to be transformed you know I've got a study and I love to be in my study with all my books and I can think really great theological thoughts there 
And I can feel like I'm really holy in that place. There's no conflict in there. And, you know, I can praise God and worship God and it's wonderful. And so long as my cat gets the good share, there's no conflict there. But when I walk out of my study and I start engaging with people, then I find, oh, I feel like losing my temper. I'm not actually as holy as I thought. And it's in the company of others as we get out of our comfort zone and our own little Christian world that we start to grow and that truth can actually come and transform us. And I'm saying here being part of a transformed community because I know, sadly, that there are places that have called themselves church where people have been harmed and that's a terrible thing. And when we encounter those people, we need, you know, we need the gift of the Holy Spirit of wisdom to really help them and and see healing there. But the type of community that Paul is envisaging here that transforms lives is one where, firstly, the leaders are seeking to have transformed lives. And that's where this letter starts. The starting point is leaders, and he gives some instruction on on the lives that the leaders should be living. So let's just briefly reflect on some of those qualities. The first one, first and foremost, he talks about faithfulness in marriage. So don't get put off by the, some translations, they they say, you know, um, appoint elders who's the husband of one wife. And don't kind of use that as your proof text that only married men can be leaders. Clearly that can't be the case, right? Paul's a single man and he's a leader. But the principle, the principle we're drawing from this is that in Christian community, in a transformed community, marriage needs to be held in high regard. And faithfulness in marriage amongst the leaders is absolutely critical. It's um, absolute not negotiable. And these marriages, you know, marriage is meant to, to reflect the faithful commitment of Christ and his church. Um, And so faithfulness in marriage and upholding marriage and respecting and honouring marriage is um, a criteria for leadership amongst these people. And alongside that, that sort of healthy model of marriage creates healthy family and you get some comments then about the children. It's interesting here, um, Paul says to Titus that the children of the leaders should be believers now, if you compare this list of, um, of leadership qualities with the equivalent list in the letter to Timothy, you'll find that he doesn't say that the children of the leaders should be believers. So it may be the case that this place, um, Crete, is such a rough place, such a difficult place, and the church is in such an early stage of um, development that the households had, to, you know, there had to be no division in the households, otherwise the whole thing wasn't going to work out. And, um, you know, same reason probably where he talks about married men as leaders. Well, he was starting house churches. And so typically the leaders of those households would be married men. And so they're forming the backbone of this initial church plant. So uh, honouring marriage, um, healthy family life and believing children. Other quality, a couple of the other qualities, uh, hospitality. Hospitality. 
Um, these house churches survived by people opening up their homes. There weren't any other options in this early church. So hospitality amongst leaders was an absolute requirement. Self-controlled, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not violent, not drunkards, not dishonest. It gives you a little clue into how rough this culture was, isn't it? Because you kind of go, did Paul actually have to say that? Isn't that obvious that leaders shouldn't be drunkards? But in this culture, obviously, it needed to be said. So it gives you a little bit more insight into what was going on. These leaders need to be holding firmly to the gospel, encouraging others um, to do the same, and at times confronting and rebuking people. So in our community, we want to invite everybody in on the journey, wherever they are in the journey. Maybe there's some people who don't believe yet and they're coming and they're coming to listen and they're coming to experience the power of God in, um, in our midst. And maybe they have some different views and they don't believe all the things that, that um, we say Christians believe yet. And that's cool. They can come in. We welcome everybody in. Welcome you here tonight if you're still thinking and still working out what it is you believe. And that's fine and that's cool. But when somebody comes in with a deliberate intention to lead other people astray, to teach something that's contrary to the gospel, then the leaders need to step up and say, no, that's not okay. And um, Timothy, uh, sorry, Paul gives Titus instructions here on that. You've got to confront those people. They shouldn't be teaching and leading other people astray um, in matters that are contrary to the gospel. So to deeply engage with truth, we, we need to be connected and an active part of a, of a community that's seeking to be transformed. Secondly, let's think about our culture a little bit critically and go, well, what, what are things in our culture that might stand opposed to the gospel? You know, because sometimes we can have blind spots and we can take on board something from our culture without um, critiquing it and saying, is this actually in line with the kingdom of God or not? We need to humbly come to, to Jesus and ask the Spirit to reveal anything like that. A couple of the things that stood out to me this week, hospitality. That word means loving strangers, loving strangers. And, you know, you guys are already doing that, you know, going out to the uni and, and meeting new people there and seeking to bless them and, and invite them in. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, I do think our culture as a whole might ha think loving strangers is a good idea, but um, we often don't have time to do it. And our busyness in our culture, I think, can conflict with um, that, that instruction to love people and sit with them and invite them into our homes and spend time. And I think, for me, that's something that I've been challenged by this week as, as I think about um, these, these qualities, these leadership qualities. And, and by the way, if you, if you don't see yourself as a leader, that doesn't mean you don't have to think about any of these qualities. Because the whole point of leaders is that they're there to model these qualities so that everybody can seek to grow in these things. Um, the other ones that stood out to me this week are self-control, uh, holiness, self-discipline. I, I don't think they're values that our culture particularly aspires to. I think our culture says, you know, you've got to express yourself. If you feel something, well, you've got to act on it. 
Um, if you don't, you're repressing your true self and you're going to miss out and that's a bad thing. I think that's what our culture says. You know, our culture might not worship Zeus, but I reckon it worships the God of self-actualization. It's all about me and my fulfillment. And to me, that is something that really stands in conflict with the gospel, in, in the desire to seek to live and, and walk with God in holiness and self-restraint and self-discipline, that we don't act on every impulse that pops into our minds or our thoughts or our emotions. Self-control. And, you know, our culture will tell you, oh, you're missing out, you're missing out, you know, go express yourself. Well, you know, the Old Testament is riddled with examples of people who could not control their, their impulses and it didn't generate wonderful lives for them. It generated destruction. All you have to do, you know, open the Bible, look at Cain. Cain who couldn't control his anger and his jealousy and lashed out in murder. Esau, who, who you know is so impatient and such a glutton that he can't give up one meal. He'd rather give up his birthright than control himself and, and give up a meal. And he ends up missing out. Aaron, at the foot of Mount Sinai, you know, Moses has gone up and the people are getting impatient and they're like, oh, we want to worship a God, we want to worship God. And, and um, Aaron is just so such a people pleaser. He hasn't got the self-control to say to those people no, and he lets them worship a golden calf. I mean, you read that story in Exodus and you see the destruction that results from that lack of self-control. Or you go to David. And David's looking in a place he shouldn't be looking He's letting his feet go to a place he shouldn't go and he can't control lust and ends up destroying um, a marriage and killing somebody. So I just, I just want to say to you, lack of self-control is destructive. It's not fulfilling. And I'm going to pinch a verse from the next chapter of Titus because it's not going to hurt you to hear it two weeks in a row. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us to say no. What is it that teaches us? It's the grace of God. It's knowing what Jesus has done for us and being so thankful and being empowered by the Holy Spirit that we can say no to ungodliness to control worldly passion and to become the people, the whole, the fulfilled people that God wants us to be. So right living demonstrates right believing. Sound doctrine that he talks about in this chapter is not this kind of intellectual set of beliefs that you tick off and give mental assent to. Yep, 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 I believe those things. We're not meant to be mere talkers. Beliefs are not meant to be separate from right living. So truth leads to godliness as we engage with it. As we're on the journey, we're not perfect yet, we need the grace of God every day, but as we increasingly engage with it, it produces in our life the, the life of God so that we become the people that God wants us to be, not just because we want to be perfect and we want to be morally superior, but so we can bring life to the community so we can bring healing to our broken culture.
Um, thirdly, look for godly leaders and imitate their life. So we're part of a believing community. We're part of a community that's seeking to be transformed and we're bumping up against people and that's a good thing. Um, we, we, we're growing in our walk with God. We're growing in godliness in our communities. That's awesome. I want to also encourage you to look around and look for leaders that you can more specifically interact with and model your life upon. This is something Josh says all the time. Uh, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Um, I heard someone say that the way to grow as a Christian is hang around someone that you can help and hang around someone who's hotter than you. Do both those things and that'll help you grow in your relationship with God. You know, a couple of years ago, I started hanging around with your beautiful Jen who comes here. Um, and I asked her if she would mentor me and, um, you know, help me with some struggles that I've been having. And, you know, her life has just been such a blessing to me. Uh, particularly over the last year, I've been reflecting on how positive she is. Sometimes I do this double take in my head and I'm like, how can you be so positive? You're always speaking positive words, encouragement over people. And I've come to see, I, you know, the Spirit of God has been working through that friendship, showing me that there's a little bit of a negative streak, a little bit of cynicism in my personality. I mean, come on, I've worked in the public service for 20 years. I mean, what do you expect? <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> but, you know... Um, it's been a blessing to interact with her because um, it's challenged me. And I've been, I, I kind of go to say, make some snide remark and I'm like, no, let's not do that. Let's see if there's something encouraging or, or just be quiet, you know. So, and I think in our culture, you know, our culture lifts up all sorts of different people who've done amazing, incredible things and go, oh, look at them, they're wonderful, they're wonderful. And, you know, that's fine, maybe they are. I'm not encouraging you to criticise them. But... At the end of this chapter, you know, he says in this letter, um, let me, sorry, I'm just losing, losing my point, my, my place. Um, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. And um, I was just thinking, you know, it's important we're careful in our hearts who we seek to model our lives on and that if someone doesn't believe, no matter how wonderful, what wonderful things they've done, you know, I need to be modelling my life on people who are in relationship with Jesus and, and, and um, seeking to follow him and seeking to have their character transformed and, you know, being less worried about outward amazing things and, and more concerned with the heart. And so I want to encourage you that as you seek to engage with the truth, engage with believers who are a bit further down the road with you than you are and seek to let them... Um, speak into your life and model the life of Christ to you. So truth leads to godliness. Truth leads to godliness. Don't kid yourself that lifestyle doesn't matter. It matters. And if you're being moulded by the values of our culture, instead of being moulded by the gospel, I encourage you to repent. It's not a bad thing to repent. It's just saying, God, would you... I'm sorry, would you help me in this area? I'm weak in this area. I want to turn around and I want to say um, yes to the kingdom of God. And if that means I've got to say no to my culture, then I'm going to do that. And we've got the power of God available to us. We've got the spirit of God who wants to dwell within us increasingly and fill us and transform us.
so that we can be salt, so that we can be that transformative influence in our cultures, in our workplaces, wherever we are. Is that cool? Can I pray for you before I hand back to Murray? Jesus, we just thank you so much for your grace, the grace of God that is available to us every step of the way. Lord, we so often fail, but your grace is always there for us. And we pray, Jesus, that you'll come and um, allow your truth to transform our lives and that you would produce godliness, um, that life of Jesus within us so that we can really impact those around us with your love and your grace and your power and that we can stand out and be different. We pray for those who have been harmed in the past by people who've said they're believers but are um, not living their life. We pray, Father God, that you give us grace to listen with mercy and compassion and to invite them back slowly, slowly into a transformative community. We pray that you'll help us to be gentle with others, not to be overbearing, um, but to increasingly grow in these leadership qualities that you set out. In Jesus' name. Amen.